Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Welcome, welcome to another session of SACPA. And uh, thank you for coming and keeping the wonderful legacy of Gordon Campbell going. I think uh, this is just an amazing institution which is kept alive and very healthy by the team of Knude Peterson and Lisa Lambert and Terry Sherrington, his, his team. So we ha owe them a thanks for this wonderful Lethbridge institution. Let's give them a hand. <clears throat> I'm your moderator today, and my name is Klaus Jericho. And um, I think I better give you a little bit of background as to why this unusual topic is dealt with today. Uh, I've spent most of my life uh, learning about life. And at one function at the university, I sat at this uh, same table with uh, Dr. Doug uh, Colville, and um, I was reminded about parasites, the fascinating world of parasites. And as a veterinarian, I learned about the life cycle of parasites, but I didn't know that there were other implications involved. And uh, his enthusiasm, dedications, uh, said to myself, you know, I think my friends at SACPA would be really interested in this because it's so different. So anyway, that's why we're having this subject today. And um, it, um, well, it's up to him to intrigue you uh, uh, with it. I just have to do a few housekeeping things. Of course, you have to deposit your $10 into your basket for this wonderful session and, and the meal you will get. Uh, you're reminded that this uh, SACBA organization is a non-profit organization and your contributions and membership are welcome. Um, and uh, without further ado, I will introduce uh, Dr. Colwell, um, who is a research scientist at the university, at the research station on the east end of town. Um, he's highly qualified to give us this talk today. In fact, he spends most of his most of his well, all his professional life with parasites in one form or another. Um, he got his BSA degree from the University of Lethbridge, his uh, MA, um, uh, Master of Science degree at the University of Alberta, and PhD from the University of Guelph. And he, his main function to satisfy the taxpayers, I gather, is to, to study uh, how parasites uh, impact livestock production but uh, he has a fascination as to what their neurological consequences might be to animals and humans. So without further ado, Doug Colwell, Dr. Doug Colwell, will you please come up and review your professional life in about 25 minutes, please? Thank you, Klaus, for the introduction. Uh, my professional life uh, won't take 25 minutes. Um, if I want to talk about parasites, though, um, you better have lots of coffee on for later in the afternoon. Um, as I, th I had to put the little subtitle there because I thought if I put the art of living together, they would think I was a counselor of some sort. Fortunately, I'm not, uh, and I, I am unfortunately also guilty of, of stealing the title from a very famous malariologist, uh, William Traeger, who uh, 
wrote a book on living together, which was about parasites, and I just kind of enhanced it a little bit with the comment about it's an art. And there's, um, as we go through this, you'll, you'll perhaps get a glimmer of, of why I think parasitism and the way animals interact with one another is truly an art. Oh, we missed one. There we go. Parasites and parasitism pop up all over the place. We have satirists like Jonathan Swift who wrote about parasites. and He didn't know very much about fleas, but he really had a glimpse of what we know more about parasites today, that there are, in fact, fleas upon fleas upon fleas, and then you add bacteria in there. And it gets it's truly interesting. Other people have turned parasitism into poems. I can think of a cowboy poet, Baxter Black, who has written one in Spanish, which is just beautiful when he reads. It's just lyrical, and, and it has rhythm to it, and it talks about fleas and lice and maggots, but in Spanish, so most of us won't understand it. Okay, introduction. But parasitism is a very diverse lifestyle. It is an intimate association between two organisms, one called the parasite, usually the smaller one. The parasite lives its entire life at the expense of usually the larger one called the host. And the Greeks, the word derives from the Greek word parasitos, which means sitting beside the food. And in fact, that's what parasites do. They sit right close to the food. Ah, okay, i got to hit the right button. Most of the time, particularly those of us who live in the Northern Hemisphere, don't really run across parasites very often. If we happen to travel to Costa Rica, we might bring one back with us, and so our interest is peaked for a moment, only long enough really to get the doctor to get rid of it. Occasionally, there are times when the a parasitic disease, for instance, gets into the news, and I've got some... I've got a few examples here. I apologize for the absence of Canadian content. Too much New York Times stuff it was easier to get a hold of. But that's usually our extent of exposure to parasites. Parasites do, however, and as you can see from these, cause fairly severe diseases in both animals and humans. And so there's a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to control and perhaps manipulate the parasite so that it doesn't cause the disease that we are most Associate, that we associate with the parasitism. Um, one of the other things that often attracts people to parasitism is the visual component of it. And um, I suppose I should throw in a disclaimer at this point in time. Some images may be shocking. This is certainly one of the things that attracted to me. I can remember on my early part of my undergraduate degree, I was flipping through a parasitology text, and I came across a picture... That's a disease called elephantiasis. There's a worm that lives in the, one of the blood vessel systems in the human body, and it causes this swelling, which eventually gets much, much larger and much more difficult for the person to move around. There's major control programs now that have almost eliminated this disease from parts of Africa. There's also this little fella here called the guinea worm. If you're associated, if you know anything about medicine, the doctors have this thing called the caduceus, which has the snake wrapped around um, a stick of some sort. Parasitologists often like to talk about 
that's what the snake really is. It's this worm that lives in the leg of a human. So parasitology can be very visual. However, it gets much more interesting and much more subtle, and I'm going to work my way through the interesting and subtle parts. Hotel California. Everybody is probably familiar with the Eagles song that says you can come in, but you can never get out again. Very many of the early naturalists started to see things like this poor caterpillar here. The caterpillar has had a wasp sting it, parasitizes the, sorry, it, it paralyzes the caterpillar. The wasp then lays eggs on the caterpillar. The larvae of the wasp move in, eat the poor paralyzed caterpillar, and eventually they emerge as wasps ready to metamorphose into the adult stage. Same thing here is a cricket that's been infected with what's called a horsehair worm. These crickets are urged by the worm to commit suicide. They dive into a pond, and the worm emerges to complete the life cycle. Examples of how the parasites control their hosts. But these, these ones aren't particularly subtle. The poor old host dies. He's just a, he's just a meal on wheels, so to speak. Okay, a, 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 short, a short course in parasitology, all in five minutes. The object of any organism, and parasites are very much like other organisms, is to reproduce and pass on their genes to the next generation. Parasites do it in much more diverse kinds of ways. This is a terrible life cycle diagram. You're going to see this one a couple times before I'm done. Parasites utilize a number of different hosts. Generally speaking, they utilize several hosts in a very specific sequence. It's important that they stick to that sequence. They can't do it any other way. And within that sequence from one host to the next, they employ a number of different reproductive strategies and behavioral strategies to make sure that they get from one step to the next. There's basically two kinds or two approaches to this. You can reproduce by the thousands. So in this particular case, the snail, the parasite on the snail produces thousands of clones. And they're spread out like a shotgun effect, hoping that somebody is going to get some, the next host is going to pick up one of them. The other approach to making sure that you complete your life cycle is to actually Manipulate the host. Make sure that it's in the right place to get picked up by the next stage. So that's, that's the introduction to this particular parasitic system I want to talk about because this parasite uses both of those strategies to make sure that it moves on to the next step in the life cycle. And it also employs some marvelous approaches. Okay, the, the parasite I'm going to talk about is the liver fluke. It's an import from Europe. They gave us all kinds of things. Anyway, uh, back in the 1930s, somebody brought some sheep over from Europe. They brought them to the eastern part of North America. Unbeknownst, they brought the liver fluke as well. The fluke has, since the 1930s, moved across North America and about 10 years ago popped up in Cypress Hills Park. We originally got tuned into it 
um, by some wildlife people who were doing surveys of, of elk and deer, and they found some parasites there. And we've been working with it ever since. It's a, as you can see, Cypress Hills is a beautiful place. It's got all the important things for the life cycle of this parasite. Lovely wooded areas, lots of water, and some good scenery. Okay, so the, the parasite has arrived in, in North America, and I'm going to talk a little bit now about what its, what, what its life history and life cycle is. The adults of this liver fluke are fairly small. They're only about a centimeter long. They live in the livers of grazing animals, elk, deer, um, cattle. I'm really curious about whether horses have them or not, but I haven't found anybody that has a horse in that area that's died recently. The adults live in the bile ducts, and you can see here this is a section through a liver. These little white things are actually the bile ducts. Normally, you don't see them when you cut into a liver. It's just clean. It just looks all that solid red color. When they're infected with the liver fluke, the bile ducts become inflamed and fibrotic. That's where the problem with this particular parasite comes in, and that's how I got involved in it is because it can be a livestock problem that has a major effect on the livers of the animals. And, of course, if your liver's messed up, uh, you've got far bigger problems. The parasite has differential effects in different hosts. Sheep are particularly susceptible. It makes a real mess out of their livers. This, these are some sheep from Scotland. You can see here that there's way more of those white spots in the liver of this particular sheep. And in fact, it's gotten so serious, these sheep are so heavily infected that they have become photosensitive. And you can see here a ewe that has started to lose all the hair on her face because of some changes that the fluke is inducing in the liver. So it, it, for them, it's a much more serious problem for us. We, don't, we have yet to see any of this kind of thing in North America. But certainly in Scotland and places, they have a fairly major concern. Okay, let's go through the life cycle and talk about some of the really fascinating details about this. As I said, the adults live in the liver of, of grazing animals, and I'm going to break out here for a minute. There's a human in this picture because, in fact, humans can become infected. There is a, just a recent study from Kyrgyzstan where about 9% of the 2- to 5-year-old children in this particular study were infected with a liver fluke. So it is possible. We always used to joke about um, the only way a human was going to get infected was to fall asleep in a patch of flowers and accidentally ingest the ant with a flower, but I guess it's not a joke anymore. Okay, so the adults living there are shedding eggs. The eggs come out in the poop. And most parasites, that's how the eggs get out. There's some other examples, but the eggs come out in the poop. So here's a representative cow patty. In there are eggs of the little liver fluke. Nearby are some gourmand snails who, for some reason or other, like poop. They graze on the poop, and maybe it's tasty, I don't know. I have never gotten around to try it. Anyway, the snails pick up an egg. The egg develops into the next stage of the fluke life cycle. Inside the snail the eggs start reproducing by the thousands. 
It irritates the snail, and the snail gets a lot of mucus, and it tends to cough up things we call slime balls. This is not a cop show. This is a snail show. Inside the slime balls are thousands of young flukes. And they're just busy wiggling and squirming in the slime ball. So here, this is where the story gets really fascinating. You are what you eat. This is, this is a, an ant. In fact, this is the species of ant that we work with down in Cypress Hills. I want to give you a couple features to focus on because I'm going to lead you through the body of an ant in a moment. This is the head of the ant. It's got a nice set of jaws and some antennae that the ant uses to figure out where he's at and what he's eating. The important part for the parasite is back here. That's the body. That's where the, the reproductive organs are, the guts, and so it's important to the parasite. Now, this next one, you have to do this one on faith. The ant has jaws here, and he goes along, and that slime ball is really interesting, so he tastes it. It's got protein in it. It's got a little bit of fluid. You know, ants need water, and maybe it tastes good, too. I don't know. If, if snails can eat poop, then ants might like slime balls. Anyway, if you believe me that there's a nice set of jaws here at the front of the ant, you'll see the jaws right here. And right there in the jaws, that red thing, is one of those little baby flukes. So this ant, we caught him at just the right moment. We caught him and tossed him into some fixative, and then we did some imaging with him, and we caught him eating one of these little liver flukes. Okay. The little baby fluke has been ingested. It's in the gut of the ant, and it wants to get out because the gut's not a nice place to be. And you can see this is the gut of the ant here. And all these little black dots are points where one of those little worms has punched his way through the gut into the abdomen of the, of the ant. And here's a fantastic image from our confocal microscope at the research center. This is the body of the ant. There's the nerve cord down there. All these little round balls are a resistance stage of the parasite. Once the little baby flukes punch their way into the gut, they form into a sac which is resistant to anything that's going on inside the ant's body, and it makes them all ready to be snapped up and live in the grazing animal's liver. That's where the thing changes. All of the flukes except one stay in the abdomen. One of them, the equivalent of Jonathan Livingston Seagull heads to the head and buries himself in the brain. And if you, I'll give you a few landmarks. This is the head of an ant. You're looking at it face on. You can see some jaw muscles here, and you can see the brain right there, the little red circle. You can see the little suckers of the fluke right there. He's buried in the brain of the ant. And you can see a closer view here. Again, you can see the sucker. And the sucker has actually wrapped itself around a bit of nervous tissue. So there's, there's one, apparently one, fluke that has essentially committed suicide, gone to the brain, and generates what we like to talk about are zombie ants. Infected ants are found on flowers and leaves, they go up the plant early in the morning, develop lockjaw, 
You can see here, this ant is just, he's glommed right onto that piece of leaf, and you can flick that ant, and he just hangs right on. Same thing here. Here's another one. You can see his jaws firmly grasping the vein of a leaf. They happen to pick plants that grazing animals like. So you might think that this is a dead-end deal. The ants just go up there and commit suicide. It's a little more subtle than that. They go up early in the morning when the temperatures are cool. If it starts to get hot during the middle of the day, the ants let go, go back to the nest. And I'm certain when they're back in the nest, all of their nest mates go, what the dickens were you doing up there? Next day, same process repeats itself. And uh, a graduate student that I share with a colleague at the uh, university has spent a lot of time, she actually goes down to the Cypress Hills with nail polish and marks ants on the, trapped on the plants and then watches them. And she's watched them come up the plants, go down the plants, come up the plant again the next day. So we, we have a pretty good idea these guys are truly zombies. They're being controlled by the parasite, presumably the one in their brain. Okay, as with any good science story, there's always more questions than there are answers. And we're in the process right now of using some marvelous tools. Here's our confocal microscope. We're using a technique called proteomics. We want to know what are those parasites doing to the brain of the ant. Is it mechanical pressure from that sucker that's squeezing a nerve? Or is the parasite just living there in the brain and secreting mind-altering chemicals? And so there's, there, there's two questions that we're working on. Another one of the questions we're working on is, is it only one that goes up to the head? Or is, or is there a whole troop that goes there? And it's only one that manages to get buried in the nervous tissue. So there's, there's at least two questions that we are actively trying to work on now. We're also doing, we're also doing some work on the impact of this infection on livestock production. I mean, that's, <clears throat> that's my bread and butter. I have to do those kind of things so that I can find my time to enjoy um, outside kinds of things. Um, and, and so there's, there's also ecological questions we're working on, looking at where are animals likely to become infected and what characteristics of the environment make it possible for all of those three animals to come together, the snails, the ants, and the grazing animals. We kind of got the feeling that it's the snails that drive the life cycle, but the ant thing is just far too fascinating to, to pass up working on. I'm going to give you another brief example of a parasite that does some very, very strange things. If, if I may have a couple more minutes to round this out. This one is not something I work on personally, and so I'm going to give you a very superficial look at it, but it's one that is it's an emerging, um, emerging parasite in the sense that we're, in the last 10 years, have discovered a great deal of the way it regulates its host's behavior and enhances its transmission from one stage to the next. There's got to be a dead body, doesn't there? It's parasitology talk. The parasite I'm going to talk about has two hosts in its life cycle. The one host is a cat, and that's the, that's the, the part of the life cycle that disseminates the infective stages around it. It's poop. 
The other host in the life cycle is virtually any warm-blooded animal, from bird to a mouse. The mice, rodents, are the most common second host. And they're the ones in which the parasite reproduces in massive numbers. And this is also where the parasite manipulates the host. Okay. About 10 years ago, some, some people working with this organism called Toxoplasma noted that, that rats and mice that were infected did weird things. Most rodents, if you expose them to the odor of a cat, they, they're gone. Either that or they freeze. They don't want to attract any attention. Rodents infected with Toxoplasma, however, do all kinds of strange things. First of all, that, that cat smell, that's kind of interesting. I think I'll check that out. And so they, they, they become more curious, they become more active, which is just the kiss of death if you're uh, the lunch, for a, lunch for a cat. And so in this, the, the parasite has driven this host to do something that is, in fact, quite suicidal. Strangely enough, depending on where you live, you have a 20 to 60% chance of you as a human being being infected with this parasite. In the developed countries, um, the percentage of people that are infected with this are maybe 10 to 20 percent. If you go to less well-developed countries, um, the, the prevalence or the, the percentage of people that are infected goes up around 60 percent. So the question becomes, does this parasite do anything to people? And the answer to that has just been popping out in the last few years. Yes, in fact, it does. Um, People that are infected with this become um, a little more aggressive. They, uh, their reaction times slow down. There's been some neat projects done with, with traffic accidents and um, infections with toxoplasma. Your reaction time slows down, you're more likely to get into a car wreck. There's also been a number of studies about personality changes. In addition to becoming aggressive, there's some other things that happens to people infected with the parasite. In the last two years, they have discovered that this parasite has two genes that produce extremely powerful substances that regulate behavior in human beings. And the most important of those is dopamine, and it, it's just, uh, it, it has frightening impacts in terms of its ability to regulate behavior in mammals in particular. So here we have the parasite hijacking. It changes the rats. I should have, it changes also changes rats' uh, sexual activity for some reason or other. Humans don't make, humans don't make particularly good, I mean, particularly good hosts in the sense that we don't fit into the food chain anymore. But in, in the historical past, when we were preyed, on, preyed upon by felids, you know, saber-toothed tigers and that kind of stuff, we could, in fact, have been part of the toxoplasma life cycle. We've kind of cut ourselves out of it now. I don't know any cases of people being eaten by their kitty cats, but... Um, so, um, just I just wanted to give you a little a little snapshot of that particular parasite because I'm just enthralled by how it works and how it manages to keep its life cycle going. A few people I want to thank, uh, people I work with, uh, and people who have contributed to the research I do. There, there's a poem about parasitologists. It's called "A Parasitologist is Like an Orchid," and at some point in time, it says that parasitologists are also good at parasitizing other people and their work. So you can see here we. Uh, managed to use a lot of other people to get our work done and tell our stories. And the thing I'd like to leave you with 
If you want to read about some of this stuff, you want to be truly fascinated by parasites. Carl Zimmer has his book called Parasite Rex. He's the black side of the equation. He talks about how dangerous and frightening parasitism is. Marlene Zuck is completely the opposite. She talks about how actually beneficial parasites are in many cases, but it, it just she's just the it's the black and white of, of the parasite world. You get uh, a very enthusiastic person on bo- in both cases, but one's black and one's much more smiley. Anyway, thank you very much for your rapt attention, and uh, it's been a pleasure. <laughs>